After a couple weeks away, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to the book of John. We return to our study uh, this morning of the Gospel of John. And so John chapter 2 is where we find ourselves once again this morning. While you're turning there, if you are turning there, let me remind you of where we have been. We've been introduced by John in grand fashion to the person of Jesus, right? That's John's whole purpose in the Gospel, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and that by knowing you might have life in his name. And so we've been introduced to this Jesus, the one who is called the Word, the one who is called the Light, the one who is called the Light, the one whom John cried out in public, here he comes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The last time we were in John, which is three weeks ago, we were with Jesus in the temple. Jesus was wreaking havoc in the temple because he was defending the honor of his Father's name and he was defending the worship of the people whom he came to save. Well, the portrait that John is painting of Jesus continues this morning and in the next several weeks through his interactions through different encounters that he comes across with first century people. First century people who in many ways are representatives of of us. People here in 2023. And so we turn this morning to John chapter 2 to what I have made a lengthy passage to talk about and to preach from. Uh, It's always a preacher's challenge. How much do you bite off? How much do you chew? This morning, I've chosen a big chunk, and the reason I've done that is because I want us to see it as a whole, even if we have to return to it a bit later. This is one of the most significant texts in all of the Scriptures, containing one of the most important verses in all of the Bible, one of the most familiar verses in all the Bible. Because of that, R.C. Sproul, the great Reformed theologian, a name many of you know well, pastor, author, theologian, he said that this was one of the most difficult texts in all the New Testament to deal with adequately. Great. I read that at the beginning of the week, and I said, great, R.C., that's not encouraging for me. Add to that the fact that uh, James Boyce who was a longtime PCA pastor, pastored one of our big churches in Philadelphia for many, many, many years, wonderful expositor of God's Word. James Boyce preached this passage that I'm about to read to you in 12 different sermons. Yeah, 12 different sermons. Part of me honestly wants to just read it, sit down, read it, pray, and then just sit down. And you know, that would be sufficient. God would still speak to us if indeed that's what I did this morning. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sit down, nor am I going to spend 12 weeks. There's much more that we can meditate and unpack. But I hope that for the next few minutes, as we dive into this great passage of God's Word, that I would remind you, maybe instruct some of you for the very first time, and certainly, hopefully, stir and thrill you about the promises of God that are ours in the Gospel. That's what we all need to hear this morning, is the Gospel. So if you're willing and able, I'd invite you this morning to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's our tradition here at Ascension 
To do that, you can follow along on the screen behind me or in your own copies of God's Word. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 321. Listen as I read. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And the man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God and no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, this morning I've got one sentence for you. One sentence that I believe this passage communicates and that we're going to unpack in three different parts. So here's the sentence. Jesus sees right through you and he loves you still. So look to Him and be healed. If you walk away from this morning with nothing else but that sentence ringing in your ears, I will have succeeded. Jesus sees right through you. He loves you still. 
So look to him and be healed. All of that, I believe, is wrapped up in these verses. And so let me show you. First, Jesus sees right through you. It can be an uncomfortable thing to be seen through, even by those who love us deeply. Right? Those of us who have been married for many years have likely experienced this quite a bit. Our spouses have an uncanny way of, of knowing that something is wrong, that something is going on. Honey, what's going on? I can see it. Parents often know, kids, listen up. Parents often can see through the insincerity or the lies of their children. Our passage this morning begins with this brief interlude of sorts. It's an interlude between two stories that that has some concluding remarks and interpretive conclusions about what has gone on and an introductory transition to what is coming next. It's the very end of chapter 2, if you're following along in your copies of God's Word. Now, the only miracle that John has recorded of Jesus at this point is Jesus turning the water to wine at the wedding of Cana, right? But that doesn't mean that this was the only miracle that Jesus had done at this point in his life. Verse 23 states clearly that many were believing in his name due to the signs, plural, that they were seeing in Jesus. It's just a little reminder that the gospel accounts were perspectives. They weren't meant to be comprehensive records of all that Jesus did. And so many are believing because they're seeing these signs that Jesus is doing. It's it's working, right? Many are believing this is a good thing. And yet, despite his popularity, John records, Jesus doesn't get caught up in it. He did not entrust himself to them, John says. Jesus wasn't flattered. Jesus wasn't impressed by all of this belief in his signs. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He saw right through them. Oh, on the outside, it looked great. Their enthusiasm looked fine. They're they're interested. They're, They're excited. This guy's got something special. We see it. And yet, John seems to hint... It was inadequate, right? It was, it was superficial. It wasn't at the level of the heart. And so John, in between Jesus' cleansing of the temple and the story that we're about to move into, he tells us all of this and kind of leaves us wanting to understand more. Like, like what do you mean? But John knows what he's doing because he immediately, after saying this, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. He he immediately narrows the lens, right? He narrows the focus. He moves from the Jews to a Jew. He moves from humanity to a man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here is exhibit A, John says. There was a man named Nicodemus. Not just a Pharisee, John writes, but a man of the Pharisees. 
It's this man who's going to help us further see and understand what Jesus sees, what Jesus knows about him and about all of you, about all of us, because Jesus sees right through us. I've wrestled, I share this with a couple guys this week that I saw midweek. I'm not sure whether Nicodemus is a, a seeker or, or a cynic. Someone who genuinely wants to know and learn or someone who thinks he knows enough and is simply challenging this young rabbi. I think there are indications of both in this passage. But it occurred to me, maybe, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe he's both, like so many of us. He's a seeker, but he's also a cynic. So who is this Nicodemus? Well, John tells us two things about him. He says he's a Pharisee. He's part of this Jewish group that was committed to the the strictest adherence of God's law as well as the tradition of the elders that had been placed upon God's law. But John also tells us that he's a ruler of the Jews. He's part of this 70-member governing body in Jewish culture called the Sanhedrin. These guys were well-respected, and powerful. In our modern political structure, think cabinet member from the executive branch, Supreme Court justice from the judicial branch, and U.S. senator from the legislative branch, all wrapped up into one. On top of that, Nicodemus, extra-biblical sources tell us, was likely from a very wealthy, well-renowned Jewish family. In other words, Nicodemus is part of the elite in power, in prominence, and in piety. He was a man who was known by many, who was called upon by many, and now here he is calling upon Jesus, and he's about to be truly known by him. Now many have made much of the fact that John states that Nicodemus comes At night, I don't think we can know for sure what that means. Perhaps it means, like many have said, that he was embarrassed, right? Nicodemus is a prestigious, well-respected teacher. He doesn't want to be known as visiting this young, new-on-the-scene rabbi. So maybe he was sneaking around, or maybe... It was simply the time to visit Jesus. I mean, during the day, Jesus was swarmed by the masses. He was followed by many as he was out and about. One thing that's interesting, though, that I think we all need to see is that John uses this word, translated night, a bunch in his gospel. But almost every time he uses it, he uses it metaphorically. In regards to this contrast that he, he already introduced us to between light and darkness. A contrast that we see in this passage. It's as if he is saying, Nicodemus, sure, Nicodemus came in the evening. He came after dinner. But he is coming as a man in darkness, spiritually speaking. To the light of all men. To the one who is about to look right through him and reveal his deepest need. And here it comes. 
Before Nicodemus even has an opportunity to ask a question, John says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I guarantee you, Nicodemus was not ready for this. He came in thinking he was in the kingdom, or at least he would be in the kingdom, because most religious Jews at that point didn't think about the kingdom as a present reality. They thought about something that would be solely at the end. And so Nicodemus came to Jesus thinking he was already set in terms of the kingdom. He came with compliments for Jesus, right? I mean, here's this old, respected rabbi coming to this young newcomer and calling him rabbi. And and he says, he uses the plural as if he's speaking for his whole tribe, like all the guys. Hey, Jesus, I'm speaking for all the guys. We know that you're a teacher from God. Welcome to the club. And Jesus isn't interested. Right? Jesus cuts right to the heart of Nicodemus, right to the heart of the issue, and he sees what he lacks. He directs this Pharisee away from his lineage, his education, his morality, his discipline, his standing in the community. He sweeps it all away, and he tells him what's absolutely necessary, the one thing he must have, and that is a new birth. It's a metaphor that brings to mind one of the most amazing occurrences in our world, right? (laughs) New life brought into existence through a birth. It's amazing. I've seen it five times. And of course, I didn't do anything. (laughs) And my kids didn't do anything when they were being born. Anna, bless her heart, she did all the work. It's the perfect image for the spiritual life. You must be born again. And the same contribution that you gave to your first birth is the same contribution you bring to your new birth. And that means that your goodness, that means that your heritage, that means that your quiet times, That means that your church attendance, that means that you're keeping your nose clean, that means that your religiosity is not what you need. Jesus sees through all of that and demands something more. In fact, you don't have what you need. But the good news this morning is that Jesus does. And that brings us to the second part of the sentence this morning. Jesus sees right through you, and he loves you still. He loves you still. You see, being truly seen, being truly known, and yet still being loved is what I proclaim to you this morning. Many of you know that I'm a big music fan. One of my favorite song lyrics of all time was from an old group in the 90s that are no longer in existence, a group called Cademan's Call, and they have a lyric that says this. I've said it to you before, I think. For you so loved the unlovable, 
that you gave the ineffable, which basically means indescribable, that whoso believes the unbelievable will gain the unattainable. You so love the unlovable that you gave the ineffable that whoso believes the unbelievable will gain the unattainable. This is a lyric that sums up the beauty and the goodness of this passage. You see, verse 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say God so loved a pretty subset of the world, not a cleaned up portion of the world, but messy, self-centered sinners like you and me. That's who he loved. That's who he sent his son for. Let me unpack this a little bit by reading a quote from a well-renowned theologian within our Reformed tradition, B.B. Warfield. He says this, when we are told that God loves the world, it is as much as if we were told that he loves the flesh and the devil. And we may indeed take courage from our text and say it boldly, God does love the world and the flesh and the devil. Therein indeed is the ground of all of our comfort and all of our hope, for we, you and I, are of the world and of the flesh and of the devil. Only the love wherewith God loves the world, the flesh and the devil therefore, us, is not a love of complacency, as if He, the Holy One, and the good could take pleasure in what is worldly, fleshly, devilish, but that love of benevolence which would eagerly save us from our worldliness, fleshliness, and devilishness. You see, verses 16 through 21 in John chapter 3, they're Jesus' words. Jesus is continuing to talk to Nicodemus. He's continuing to assure Nicodemus that even as he looks right through him, God is for him. That he is the light who has come for those in darkness just like him. Now granted, he's got Nicodemus confused right at this moment. Nicodemus is hung up on this primary meaning of the word again. Born again, right? He says, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born? It's a good question, Nicodemus. You can't, which is exactly Jesus' point. But even beyond that, as, as your ESV footnote states, those of you who have that translation in your laps, it's not just a second birth, it's a supernatural birth. It's a birth from above. In other words, Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit. And when Jesus says this, he brings to mind, particularly for Nicodemus, this Old Testament expert, the one who he calls the teacher of the law, he brings to mind Ezekiel 36. Let me turn there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Ezekiel chapter 36. Let me just read a couple verses. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 5. Yahweh says to the house of Israel, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you 
And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Ezekiel wasn't a small book. Nicodemus would have known this book well. And so when Jesus says, you must be born of water and spirit, Nicodemus is immediately thinking, Ezekiel 36. The dry bones that need life breathed into them. This has always been the way. This has always been the need. God's people have always needed cleaning. They've always needed resurrection outside of themselves. And Jesus says, you should have known this. You should have seen this, Nicodemus, in your study of the Old Testament Scriptures. But he's still shocked. It's the last thing he thought he'd hear. Now Jesus says, I stand before you as the Son of Man from heaven. I have come that you, that the world, might be saved through me. And not just in the future, but now. The kingdom is now. Adminence is now. You see, friends, this is, this is the new birth. Regeneration is another fancy theological term that we use. Given in love. This is the life of God implanted in the soul of man. This is the giving in His grace by His Spirit. The giving of a new heart, a new mind, new affections, new will. Everything that you need for life and godliness. This is what you need. And this is what God gives to you in love. And he goes then to describe this life-giving work of the Spirit as the wind in our passage. Think about the wind. The wind is, is uncontrollable. No one can stop it. No one can steer it. It is sovereign. The wind is invisible. No one can see it except for the effects that it leaves behind. And the wind is mysterious. No one can explain why it accomplishes what it does. Have you ever seen those tornado aftermaths in the Midwest? How the wind chose to blow that house down to toothpicks? And the next door neighbor is untouched. Paul will bring different language to this idea of new birth from above. In Ephesians 2, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, I think the application for us in thinking again upon the new birth is just to simply marvel at the sovereign grace of our God that would look on people like us, sinners, and would die for us, and would give us eyes to see who He is. This is the message that we have. This is the message that unites us. This is the treasure that we have to share with others. And if you're here this morning and you're listening or maybe you're tuning in online, you're listening and you're not one of those who has seen, at least not before today, 
Hear God's love for you. Feel His pursuit of you, even now. And simply do what Jesus calls us all to do in this passage. Jesus sees right through you. He loves you still. So look to Him and be healed. Jesus doesn't leave Nicodemus exposed after seeing right through him. No, he gives him not only the promise of God's love, but the process of apprehending that love. And to do that, he gets right in Nicodemus' wheelhouse again. Right? He took him to Ezekiel 36. Not explicitly, but in Nicodemus' scholarly understanding. And now he brings to mind a story that we find in Numbers Chapter 21. Again, I'm going to turn there and read it briefly. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. This is a crazy story. Indiana Jones type story. Numbers chapter 21. From Mount Or they set out by the, by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people, that is the nation of Israel, became impatient on the way. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. So that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He will take these serpents away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Crazy story. And Jesus says that was just a shadow of what was to come. Just as Moses' symbol was lifted up to bring healing against the curse that came against God's people because of God's judgment, because of their own sin, so Jesus will be lifted up on that cross. And all it will take, not effort, not religion, not anything, but just look. Just believe that that's enough. This is how you know that you are savingly loved by God. New birth is possible because of the cross. New birth is revealed by belief in that saving act. The story is told of of John Payton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides, who years ago in his ministry to these very rural tribes there, he was searching for the right word to translate into the local language the equivalent for believe. And he didn't know what word to use, what phrase to use in this particular tribe. And he was coming back from a bunch of the men and he was exhausted after some hunt that they had been on. He plopped down and one of the locals said to him in his language, it's good to stretch yourself out and rest when you're tired. 
And John Payton said, that's it. Stretch yourself out and rest. That's what believing is. And that's what he used to translate. The crazy thing is that not everyone looked to the remedy. Right? Some thought it was too simple. Oh, that'll never work. I'm not looking at that. I'll just stay in my tent and suffer. Some maybe thought it was silly. Some maybe, be, maybe they're furiously working in their tent. They're bringing all their herbs and whatever they can do. They're trying to heal themselves. And so they didn't go out and look and be healed. And the same is true today, right? God so loved that He gave as a gift His Son. Just look to Him. Believe in Him. And life eternal is yours. Peace and joy and rest is yours. Instead, so many are content. Not only content, but they love to live in darkness. They love to live in uncertainty. They love to live as gods unto themselves when so much more is offered to them. It reminds me of the story, and I'll close with this. It reminds me of the story of Hero Onoda. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Have you ever heard that name? Hiro Onoda? Hiro was an imperial Japanese army officer who fought in World War II. He was stationed in the Philippines and he was forced into the hills and into hiding as the U.S. and Philippine forces took the island. That was March of 1945. And when the war ended in August of 1945, despite leaflets being dropped all over the island informing every soldier that was out there that Japan had surrendered, Hiro didn't believe it. He thought it was propaganda. He refused to surrender for 29 years. Finally, in 1974, they found him and they convinced his former superior officer in the Imperial Army of Japan, who is now selling books in Japan, they convinced that man to give commanding orders to relieve Hiro of his military duties. It was the only thing that would cause him to surrender. It's a crazy story. What's my point in bringing it up? So many of us are still fighting. We're hiding. We're refusing to rest. The war is over. Why are you still at war with God? Lay down your resistance. Lay down your performance. Lay down your pride. And embrace His love. Because at the end of the day, Jesus sees right through you. But praise God, He loves you still. So don't look anywhere else. Look to Him and be healed. Brothers and sisters, this is the message for your hearts today and every day. And it's the message that you carry to your families and your co-workers and your neighbors. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for this wonderful passage, this wonderful encounter with Nicodemus, a religious leader who thought he had it together, thought he was doing what needed to be done, 
And he didn't realize that he needed to let go and simply look to Jesus. Oh, Father, may the gospel so grip our hearts that we can't take our gaze off of Jesus. And may the gospel so gripping our hearts indeed transform our lives as your spirit puts off the old and puts on the new. Oh, Father, plant this word deep in our hearts, I pray, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.